0: Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Today's visitor to the island is one of Ireland's best-selling authors. Did he's been awarded the Hennessy Literary Hall of Fame Award for his work. It's a pleasure to welcome John Boyne. And John, I see your first musical choice is Kate Bush. So this would be your growing up years, I presume. Well, yes, growing up and,
1: and beyond. Um, Kate Bush, of course, um, recorded her or released her first single Wuthering Heights in 1978. So I would have only been seven years old then. But I really got into Kate Bush when I was 14, when The Hounds of Love, that album came out with Running Up That Hill. And yeah. I remember buying that album. It was, um, do you remember when you were a teenager, like when you fourteen, 14, 15, you really have to save up to yeah, buy an album yeah. and it's so important. Yeah. And in those days when it was an actual physical album as well. And I remember buying that and I listened to it over and over and over. And it's such a, and I still listen to it. It's such a complicated, interesting album because the second half of that album is one suite of music uh, called The Ninth Wave. And it's all built around this notion of a woman drowning at sea. And then being saved, so it it goes into her thoughts as she's drowning. It goes into the um, what she's thinking about her family and her yeah. friends, and then the rescue ship coming for her. And every time you listen to it, you know you find something new in it. And she's had this extraordinary career over more than 40 years. I think my, my second favorite album of all time, After Hands of Love, is her 2005 album, Ariel, which also, you know, in the second half of that, it's about a sunrise, a painter just um, painting a sunrise. And you've got 10 songs that yeah. incorporate all of that. And um, I love her was literally. She still, was
0: she still big internationally in 2005? In Oh, she's still big now. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's just that she doesn't release records very often. Um, her last album was 50 Words for Snow, which I guess is about six, seven years old now. And every so sort you, of... You could and go on, on
0: Mastermind, John, about Kate Bush's subject. <laughs> Actually,
1: I once did um, University <laughs> Challenge. Did you? And, um, yeah, it was like... Um, uh, I mean, the standard of celebrity, celebrity <laughs> University Challenge at Christmas, um, and there was a Kate Bush question, and I and and I buzzed in and it was <laughs> Boyne University, of East Anglia and I got it right, and um, I was very very thrilled. That was that was fun, I'd say, was it doing that? It was really good fun. Yeah. It was it was nerve wracking, um, because you're just waiting for Jeremy Paxman to go. Come on, come on, come yeah. on, you know, and you're terrified of getting it wrong, and the questions are really hard.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, did, did you win the, the on the night? W- we did. We won, and we got to the
1: um, semi final, and then. And we got to the final and then we lost in the final to it was all shown over Christmas week yeah. about three or four years ago yeah. and we lost to one of the Oxford colleges um, no, so, no shame in that no shame yeah. in that but I was on the University of East Anglia yeah. team but anyway where Kate, you studied yeah yeah. so Kate Bush and then but you know she only releases an album every every sort of seven eight nine years but there are always these extraordinary Masterpieces. She's probably the most singular um, British singer songwriter, I think, uh, of of her time. Um, So I've just always been uh, kind of obsessed with her, and I saw her once in concert. Because again, she doesn't really she doesn't perform live. But again, about five six years ago, she just out of nowhere, she just decided to do a series of concerts at the uh, the Hammersmith. It used to be the Hammersmith Apollo, I think it's something else now. Um, And um, she did like this three act. It was like a theatrical performance. Mm-hmm. The first act was kind of the greatest hits. Second act was the ninth wave from Hands of Love. The third act was um, the, that half of Ariel. And um, it was so intimate because it was a kind of a theatrical experience. Mm-hmm. And she uh, went through the crowd at one point, and she passed me by and touched my hand. And you know, <laughs> I, uh, I have I have watched that mm. since and, mm. um, multiple disinfectants mm. since COVID. But um, it was it was just she was always like a mythical figure to me.
0: Yes, I, yeah. I never
1: really believed she really existed, and yet there she was in front of me. And you know, another um, another writer, he's now officially an Irish writer, I think, David Mitchell, um, is also a completely obsessive. Uh, Bush fan yeah. and when David and I get together we, we kind of compete over who is who is <laughs> the, the bigger, bigger fan, fan. <laughs> and he beats me on one thing which is that he got to write a, uh, a, a narrative for that stage I show think, that she yeah. did so that was pretty impressive but I beat him on the fact that I have a tattoo on my right arm which says wave after wave which is from <laughs> The ninth wave. So I think it's one all between David and myself.
0: I didn't realise you were such a huge fan. You you play music, of course, don't you?
1: I do. I play guitar um, um, very badly and I play uh, piano reasonably okay. And did you you learn that as a child? Yeah, my dad was always a very keen uh, piano player and he brought my brothers and sisters uh, to piano lessons every week when we were kids. and great we hated to learn, it. isn't
0: it? Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, it was great. And I'm so happy he did. But when I was a small kid, when I was like seven, eight, yeah. nine, I absolutely right. hated it. I remember I had, when I was about seven, my music teacher, my piano teacher was a woman called Madam Fox. She was about 90, right? At the time. So she's, you know, long dead now. Yeah. But she used to kind of like, you know, you'd be playing and she'd stand over you with a ruler and hit your knuckles with the ruler. And I was absolutely terrified. The amount of times I left that room in <laughs> tears. But years later, you know, now I'm really, really grateful that he gave me that gift yes. um, because I play piano, oh God, I would say every day of the week. I would say at yeah, some point yeah. I just, you know, pass by the piano and I just go in and like play something.
0: And Kate Bush would be amongst
1: those. Kate Bush writes all her songs on piano, but actually she's extremely difficult to play. You have to be yeah, very skilled as opposed to, I think we're going to talk about Elton John a bit yeah. later. And he, of course, writes his on pianos, but they're much easier. A Kate Bush song just, it's just too
0: complicated. I'm not, I'm not skilled enough. All right, And you've chosen, of all the Kate Bush choices you've chosen this woman's work Yeah, it just seems, it's, it's such a beautiful song, it's such a beautiful
1: track I think uh, from the album of the same name and it, it really kind of sums up her life and her career and what she does as an artist and a musician and the lyrics are so beautiful as well about an expectant father, so yeah, it's just a song I, I really, really love
0: Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1 that's Kate Bush, this woman's work, the choice of today's guest, best selling author John Boyne. Now we move on to your second choice, John, and it's Sinead O'Connor. Yes, Sinead O'Connor, uh, like my other choices, I have been a long-term
1: uh, fan of Sinead O'Connor. Uh, I can still remember hear, uh, hearing Mandinka, you know, for the first time on Top of the Pops. I guess I was about, I don't know, 1920. And of course, when Sinead came along first, she was such a striking presence. You know, she, was, uh, she is so beautiful and that... Obviously, the head, the bald head, you know, but and that aside, that extraordinary voice. I mean, I absolutely think she is the greatest vocalist that this country has ever produced and one of the best singer songwriters. That's
0: that's a big statement. And and not many would argue with you, but we have had great vocalists. We, we? We have. But I
1: just think, you know, just as a vocalist alone, the passion, the emotion that goes into her singing. And, you know, it's extraordinary sometimes to listen to even some of her cover versions. She does a cover version of Sacrifice by Elton John, which is really, really slow. It's Mm. beautiful. And she puts her heart and soul into every lyric. I always get the impression that before she sings anything, she knows those words inside out and what they mean. And she's a great songwriter as well. I think sometimes people forget because she's such a great singer, Mm -hmm. we forget how skilled she is as a songwriter. But I also really admire the fact that over the years, I think, you know, she's been famous, I don't know, 30, 35 years or something like that. And she has been such a great voice, I think, in this country. She has been brave, um, outspoken. She has stuck to her beliefs. Um, throughout every time that she has been kind of slapped Mm -hmm. down and she's jumped up again I think she's an extraordinary uh, extraordinary woman I I met her once because I wrote a piece in the Irish Times some years ago when her last album was being released the album that this song comes from and I wrote a kind of like just a fanboy piece about how much I had loved her and then later that week I got a text message out of the blue saying hi this is Sinead Um, (laughs) O'Connor I'm going out to dinner on Friday Uh, do you want to come with me and I was like uh, let me think. <laughs> Friday? Do I have anything on? Um, yeah, okay, I'll come. Sure, why not? And I went to went to dinner with her, and then went to her. She was doing a show in the National Concert Hall wow. the next night, and went to that and uh, the party afterwards. And she was just so kind and thoughtful and interesting to speak to, and quiet. I guess you know, in in, in as a writer, you know, you meet. Lots of famous people along the way, mm. but I've never had the experience like that night when w- I walked up Grafton Street with her, and we were going to the Bailey, I think, for a, for a drink and. Everybody on the street just staring, you know. It's like, oh my God, it's Sinead O'Connor. But it's
0: in, a, it's in a positive, loving way though, isn't oh, yeah. it? Oh I, yeah, I
1: think yeah. Irish people, I think we love her. You know, mm. she. we have kind of been with her through her ups and downs in life. And I think she's always wished well by people.
0: It was an amazing text to get, wasn't it? Oh, I couldn't believe yeah, it. I was yeah. like, you know, I had to, you know, get the smelling salts out. Yeah, yeah. So... So you're a huge fan. Anyway, this is Sinead O'Connor
1: and your choice, Take Me To Church, by the way. Yeah, because I think her most recent album, uh, her, her most recent albums actually, the last two or three, have, you know, they, they, people always talk about, you know, nothing compares to you and of course that's a classic and everything. But she, she continues to write and record extraordinary songs and this is just such an upbeat, powerful number and she just roars her way through it and
0: it's great. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Sinead O'Connor and take me to Church, the choice of today's guest, author John Boyne. John, when when you're writing and you've had so much success now and, and in so many countries, uh, I was intrigued, by the way, by the number of languages in which your books have been written. Yeah, I think we're into uh, 53
1: different languages now. That That's to... incredible. Yes. You know, it's not too bad. You know, J.K. Rowling has 65, but she has... Latin and ancient Greek you're and things like that. Me. I don't have those.
0: So. You've had, you've kind of answered my question. I was going to ask, I don't, I haven't a clue how many languages there are in the world. I would say that's probably about the most because I, I can't imagine yeah. a language or a publishing
1: nation not publishing Harry Potter. So yeah. I would say we're looking at about 65 in total.
0: And you're, you're at 53. I'm at 53. That's incredible. Yeah,
1: but what have I done wrong in the other 12? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, have, what have I done to offend them? Out, out of curiosity, do you know what any of the other 12 are?
1: Um, I don't, but I do know that that occasionally I've had emails from my agents about sort of you've sold rights to this book here. And occasionally I've had one about a language that I had never heard of. For example, let me test you. Um, I won't know. Sinhala. Where would Sinhala be? Sinhala. I
0: don't know. It's a Sri Lankan language. Oh, wow. So so you'll
1: sometimes get get one that you, you literally have no clue and you have to look it up and say, oh. Oh, that's nice.
0: And is that the main language of Sri Lanka?
1: Because I know been, India has lots of
0: Yeah, because I think I've got a few
1: like, in India. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I think it is the main language of Sri Lanka. I was in Sri Lanka once. It's beautiful, beautiful country.
0: That's It's extraordinary though, isn't it? I mean, was there one book in particular? Was it The Boy in I think it was probably The Boy in Striped Pajamas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, they might have done some other ones, I think. Yeah. But, but usually, definitely Striped Pajamas is, is in most of those, I think. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, I yeah. mean that—that that was a book that just completely changed my life in that sense, and um, and it was wonderful, you know. I mean, it—it like it, it, it was an important subject matter, which was course, great, yeah. And but it also brought me around the world and introduced me to readers because it was my my fourth book,
0: but the first one that really, of course, took off. Well, it, it more than took off. I mean, well, in yes, fairness, did, yeah. most writers would would say your first and second ones did take off. I mean, what what was the What was the confidence booster you got before that? I mean, to kick on uh, as a a a writer, writer, um, as a young
1: writer starting off. It it was tricky then because when I started, when I published my first novel in in 2000 and there wasn't literary festivals, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to to promote your work. There was no social media, things Mm. like that. So uh, I was still working at the time. I was working in a bookshop. And really the book, you know, my first couple of books kind of came out and maybe you did an interview with... A newspaper, and that was that was yeah. the end of the matter, and you hoped. Now, granted, I was working in a bookshop, so I could put it at the front, yeah. so yeah. that was helpful. But it was only one bookshop; I wasn't working in the mall. Yeah. Um, whereas now, of course, you know, it's like a military campaign. In the you know six months leading up to publication, uh, you, you're constantly involved in plans uh, from different. Countries and the different kind of media that you'll do, and recordings maybe of readings of the book and so on. And nowadays there is a lot of interest in brand new Irish writers that when I started out there wasn't really. There was only really a handful of us that, you know, myself and Paul Marie, Claire Kilroy, who were kind of from that generation, yeah. the kind of post, say Roddy Doyle generation, but the pre. Um, Donald Ryan generation, right, yeah, so to yeah. speak, and um, you know the, you, were, you weren't really traveling, weren't doing literary festivals, you weren't meeting readers, and that's one of the great joys now that you that you can do. Or at least it's obviously been suspended with the yeah, with COVID course, and everything. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things I'm most looking forward to when this is over is kind of getting back to that because mm. I really enjoy those festivals and talking to readers and talking about books.
0: Yeah, when you were in the bookshop, and albeit you could promote your first and second book. Did you see the day when you could become a full-time writer?
1: I I hoped it would happen. I wasn't sure. And uh, when I started to write my third book, I just decided then to leave the shop. Uh, I couldn't really afford to leave, but, you know, I, I... I just about could if I you know was frugal for about yeah, 6 yeah. months or a year and I moved down to Wexford at the time and took a little house down there on the beach and worked on my third book because I felt at the time I'd been 7 years in the shop and I had been promoted I was a manager and it was it seemed to me that I had to make a decision I was maybe 31 32 you're either a writer or you're 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 ascending the scale in Waterstones and I just decided right it's the time
0: so so I went and I hoped for the best It's courageous so John because if book number three hadn't kicked on and and you were living a frugal life, yeah, well,
1: and it, it was I guess it was, but I I believed in myself, you know, for for right or wrong, and I think I felt well if it goes wrong, I want to have at least tried. and yeah. I had a foothold in anyway, so you know I had published those first two books and. Then I wrote Crippen, which was the third one, and then I wrote Striped Pyjamas, mm-hmm. and and so I was I was pretty o- okay from there on, but I think uh, any anybody involved, well, any, actually anybody with any ambition, forget about just the arts. If you really do want to do something, sometimes there are moments in life where you you just have to take a leap of faith, mm-hmm. and and I took one then. It paid off. It paid off you yeah.
0: in a, in a huge way. Uh, the Boy in Striped Pyjamas. Where where did it gain its first international kick? Well. Actually Australia, I think, because
1: it came out in January 06 but for some um I don't know publishing reason it came out for Christmas o5 in Australia. Yeah, yeah. So um it's it, it suddenly took off there before it was even released anywhere else. And as we went into Christmas, the new year that year, I was being told, you know, you sold thirty thousand copies of this in Australia in three or four weeks. And um and that was like that's unheard of. Mm-hmm. and so suddenly things were taking off and then it came out in 06 and it went just straight in at number one and um, it spent 80 weeks at number one here and which is yeah. unbelievable and but the Spanish language countries for some reason really um, really liked that book as well and so South it, America it Spain, South America, yeah, uh, yeah like Mexico, Brazil yeah. um, I, I've always had a really strong readership there. Again, I have no particular reason why I, I don't know why, but um, but I'm, I'm glad I do. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but also, you know, the two languages, I, the two languages I was most concerned about with that book, of course, with the German edition and the Hebrew edition, course, yeah. and what the response would be um, with with both of those uh, th- with both of those cultures and nationalities, and they were both very. It was very good. You know, it was a very positive response. And then I like it. It, it was a it was a terrific time, really. Was it life. a
0: big seller in in Israel? Yes, yes, it was. Um, and in Germany? Do, do you know, the only place it didn't really ever take
1: off very well was France. You know, of all the countries it was published in, and you know, it was published in France and it did okay, mm. but it never really... I don't know, the French don't seem to like foreign authors that much. You <laughs> know, they like Paul Lynch. He does very well in France. <laughs> but um, for some reason, I, I, um, Striper Jam has never really seemed to find a big French following. Yeah. But what are you going to do?
0: I know. Well, since then, it's a long time ago, and of course it, it was... T- be the the rock on which you were able to continue your career and you've written about so many such a broad range of subjects and including ones that, that I, I read once you said you needed to gain confidence in yourself to write about some of the subjects in Ireland for instance and...
1: Yeah because I didn't write about Ireland until A History of Loneliness which I think came out about 2012 mm-hmm. something like that and that was about the, the child abuse scandals in the church mm-hmm. here and I had always kind of put off writing about Ireland and my standard answer when people asked me why I didn't was because you know I, I, I didn't feel that as a, just because I was an Irish writer that it meant I had to write about Ireland sure. But I don't know if I was being, I don't know if I was absolutely, if it was right. I think maybe there was a part of me that was just nervous of doing it. And mm-hmm. I i needed to wait until I found a particular story. And when I wrote that book, the floodgates of all these memories from childhood, really. And it was a lot based on things that had happened to me. You know, there was a lot about being, growing up in, in Dublin in the 70s and 80s, about altar boys, about Tarnier College. Um, and, you know, finally putting myself into the stories mm. unleashed something in me because that led on then to The Heart's Invisible Furies which was it was a great hit for me and yeah. I, that was about the you know set of gay rights in Ireland between 1945 and, and the equal rights marriage referendum and how Ireland had changed And I I think, yeah, I think I felt better writing about it at, you know, in my early 40s than if I'd written about it in my 20s. I think if I'd written about the church in my late 20s or early 30s, it would have just been a real diatribe. It would have just been really angry. Whereas that's, you know, as a writer, you can't really do that. You have to find you know a balance you have to find some way into a story that doesn't feel like you're just screaming at a reader or
0: um trying to you know tell them all your personal yeah. beliefs Well we we had changed as a nation as well though John hadn't we yeah. in that 20 years we well,
1: we had and, and and it's one of the things I try to track in yeah. Hearts and Invisible Furies uh, is how we changed as a nation because I always thought it was extraordinary that when I was in um Trinity homosexuality for example was still illegal whereas we then became the first country in the world to vote for equal rights marriage mm-hmm. by, by public plebiscite like those two things there's a disconnect you know in the 22 years between those
0: two things it's we're very strange but it's wonderful yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. It's extraordinary changes your, your final musical choice John Boyne uh, Elton John
1: Yes, a cassock. Everyone loves Elton. Everybody <laughs> loves a bit of Elton.
0: But the reason that I love Elton the most is
1: we talked about the fact that I, I play piano mm-hmm. and Elton John is the person who I like playing the most on piano um, and I love playing your song. It's my—it's pretty much my my party piece and um, it's, it's a great shame that we do not have a piano well, here. Well, I, I jokingly so, said
0: to you, I wish we had a piano in the studio and you said you would have played it. I would have. I yeah, actually put yeah. it down in the vague hope that you might ask ah, sure. me because <laughs> I'm such an egotist.
1: <laughs> but um, <laughs> I once played a guitar on uh, Miriam McCullahan the show, um, but anyway, um, the how did it go? How was I think it was okay? I played yeah. an Eddie Vedder song, and, uh, I think it went okay, but I'm better at the piano. And you know, he writes such beautiful music for piano, and um, and he's still, you know, to this day, people uh, sometimes don't realize that I think maybe that in the last 15 years or so, some of the albums he's produced, they I think they are as good as the albums he's produced in mm-hmm. the 70s, you know, everything from songs from the west coast on, where he really gets back, him and Bernie Taupin get back to that. Just him and the piano and these beautiful lyrics, and um, there's that that wonderful album, um, "Songs on the West Coast," which tracks the. It's a concept album, really, tracking their first arrival in America and and what happened to them and getting you know getting this extraordinary yeah. success because in the seventies, of course, like there was nobody as big as Elton John, and. Um, and I went to... I've only heard him once. I went to, to see him once in the most romantic of all places, Slough in England. <laughs> um, but it was a very intimate concert because it was something... To, it was a charity event to do with, I think, the the Paralympics. Yeah, 2012. And yeah. Uh, so I, I went to see him there. So there was only maybe 2,000 people. And it was... Um, it was outdoors at the back of this kind of big country home type affair, and everybody was up dancing. And he he just came out. Himself. There was no band. It was just Elton and the piano, and he sat there for the about dancing. two and a half hours, yeah. and he just played all the hits, and oh, and no. it was extraordinary, you know. And he can sing still, you know. He he just throws out those songs, and you know he plays
0: away at that piano like 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 a mad thing. Do you know what I've discovered from this program, John? That um, there is a potential programme where you get people who we all know from a different walk of life like you from writing sports people who all have a little party piece and you would get a great programme of people who idea, you don't yeah, expect yeah. to have to have in the party piece. So you would you would yourself have played this had we the piano and studio we yes. don't so it'll have to be Elton. Ah well, but he does it just a little <laughs> bit better than me. But it's a lovely way to play out and thank you very much John Boyne for joining us with your musical memories it's been a pleasure chatting you. with you. Dez's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.